Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, should Hamilton ask the federal government for assistance if the LRT project goes over budget? Prime Minister Theresa May is pushing for another vote on Brexit. And also, who stands a chance at the Democratic presidential bid? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We had the uh, Environment Minister, uh, Catherine McKenna, on the program yesterday. She was in town. She met with Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger for a period of time as well. And uh, one of the topics they brought up was uh, funding for LRT. More specifically, funding the cost of overruns on the LRT project. And and I know that when I've talked to the mayor about this, he's always said, look, it's a hypothetical situation. Uh, he still doesn't think there's going to be cost overruns. Uh, I'm a little more skeptical about that. As a matter of fact, I'm skeptical the province is even going to give us the billion dollars they keep talking about. Uh, but anyway, we'll get into that in just a second. But if that project does go over budget, should we ask the federal government for assistance? Well, the mayor asked the minister that yesterday, and she said, well, there has to be an official request. And she, she kind of danced around the issue, didn't really give a direct answer to that. How easy is it, though, to, to knock on the door and try to get that kind of money for uh, any kind of a project uh, when you talk with uh, senior levels of government, either provincial or federal? Well, let's uh, ask somebody who's knocked on those doors. Larry DeAnne is a former mayor of the city of Hamilton, of course, and he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Larry, how you been? I am well, Bill. Thank you. Good. Good to have you with us today. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about, uh, first of all, the, the relationship between uh, municipal and, and senior levels of government. In this particular case, it's the federal government as well. Uh, I, I know that when you became mayor, uh, one, of, one of the first things I know that you have tried to arrange was a meeting with the brand new premier. At that time, it was Dalton McGinty. And uh, we were musing about that at City Hall at the time. I don't think we could remember the last time a sitting premier had actually visited Hamilton, especially at City Hall. It's usually a photo op someplace else. How, how easy or difficult is it for, to arrange that sort of thing, to actually have a sit-down with somebody, either a premier or a prime minister? Well, um, the prime minister is a little tougher, but, but with the premier, um, it was, at least back in the day, it was relatively simple because... Uh, we had just been elected as a new council, and I was a new mayor, and the premier had just been elected as well as a new premier, and he uh, was going around the province uh, meeting, uh, uh, you know, the chief magistrates of uh, of the major cities, and uh, when we called, um, the answer was yes right away, um, and so we arranged a meeting at City Hall. Now, he was late getting there um, because of other issues that he had to deal with. But he came, um, and uh, we had a, a very good chat uh, about major projects in the city of Hamilton. Um, primary one was the uh, uh, the uh, Red Hill uh, Expressway, as we called it then. Um, and um, well, you had another discussion. One of the contentious issues that time, Larry, was uh, I think it was infrastructure funding, wasn't it, for the the business park up at the, the top of the Red Hill in the yes. East Mountain? Yes, we had a shopping list of, yeah. of issues uh, that we had prepared, actually, and I presented to the Premier. And uh, he pledged, here, here's a pledge that he made at the time. He said, Mayor, I'm going to help put Hamilton back on the map. And, um, and remember, we had been facing some real challenges as community uh, back in that day. And I was both pleased and saddened to hear that comment, saddened that here's the new Premier of the province, who thought that Hamilton was not on the map, but pleased at least that he was going to put some provincial heft to uh, helping us um, get out of our our financial doldrums. And in fact, they came through over the uh, over the years uh, and still continue, I would hope, uh, if this billion dollar comes through, to contribute to Hamilton's economy and 
infrastructure issues. That, uh, you just used that magical word, if, uh, which is the word I've been using when it comes to funding. And I, I understand the premier said, you know, the mayor got reelected, yada, yada, yada. So if he, that's what he wants. Uh, but I'm looking at some of the the, the actions, because right? actions speak louder than words in politics, as we know, Larry. And uh, some of the actions of the Ford government lately, and the most recent one, of course, is canceling the $3 million for the Ancaster uh, uh, f- project up there. Of course, the, uh, the the play center that was supposed to be up there right on Wilson Street, the art center. And uh, uh, and, the, and the excuse they gave is, well, there's no funding source identified, which actually is baloney. But uh, I, I'm, I'm concerned now about the billion dollars. Uh, I know the budget's coming down in a few weeks, but uh, we still haven't heard any firm commitment from this government yet. So that, if, I think, is very appropriate. Well, it is. Now, I take the Premier at his word uh, that, um, um, and the last word uh, was that if Hamilton wants this project, uh, uh, then they'll get the billion dollars that's been promised. And that promise has been repeated by uh, MPP Donna Skelly, of course, is the lone government MPP from our city. And so I, I take it at their word that they're going to come through. But my goodness, they sure are slow walking it, though, right? And, um, you know, having stopped uh, Metrolinx from buying properties that are needed, uh, and although planning is moving forward, um, everything seems to be slower. The urgency just doesn't seem to be there. Uh, And, of course, what that does, time is money, and as time goes on, costs rise. And so I agree with you that although, as the mayor indicated, we don't know whether there are going to be cost overruns, well, when was the last time the government did something that took longer to build than anticipated that the cost stayed fixed? So I'm anticipating that there will be uh, more costs uh, because of the time delay. And so it's, it's very timely to, to get the uh, federal government involved, I think. Well, I have heard, and I can't confirm this, I've tried over the last uh, five or six days, uh, to get confirmation on that, but I've talked to somebody who has knowledge of what's going on uh, with Infrastructure Ontario and some of the inner workings of, of those agencies, and he told me that the last estimate they were kicking around uh, was about $6.5 million over budget, uh, which is pretty substantial, and uh, that, that's obviously which I think uh, initiated this, this conversation that if that's a, a big number and if that is the, the projected cost overrun here, uh, whose lap is that going to fall on? And uh, MPP Skelly, of course, told us on this program a couple of weeks ago that it's the city's responsibility. And uh, I, I'm sure, as you would think, Larry, you, you've been through this budget process so many times, uh, I'm not so sure that that's a, a, a weight the city can carry at this time. So was that 6.5 or 65 overrun? Uh, well, he, six point, I, I guess maybe I put the decimal point in the wrong place. And again, he was he was telling me he had knowledge of this, this individual I was talking to. But I said, well, show me something. And he said, well, I can't do that. But it's it's significant amount of money. Yeah, maybe it was 65. I'm not so sure. I just remember yeah, the 6 because, and 5. Yeah, because 6.5, I think, would be, you know, one could handle that. I think the city could handle that. Now, when you're getting into uh, edging up into the um, $100 million mark, by the time everything is said and done, that that's substantial money. And, and that was two uh, weeks ago. And like, as you said, the clock is ticking. The longer this thing goes and they don't actually get a shovel in the ground, the, the bigger the chance, of course, of, of an extended cost overrun. Yeah, indeed. And so, and so it's quite timely and appropriate uh, for the feds to step in and help. You know, the federal government, when they won the, the, the last election, they, they promised this infrastructure fund for municipalities. And I noted just this past week in one of the press releases that the Minister of Infrastructure, Mr. Minister Sodi, 
who is bragging about the uh, the substantial investment in public transit in his own uh, hometown. I think Edmonton, if I if I remember correctly, uh, that the federal government had made. And so, if they're going around providing infrastructure cash um, across the country, uh, Hamilton needs its fair share as well. And uh, and this may be a project that uh, is already on the books. The plans are. Uh, drawn up and and being uh, consolidated as we speak. So it's not a question of having to find something to then spend the infrastructure money on. This is uh, to be presented on a platter to the federal government and uh, and, uh, hopefully uh, to assist. Okay, you've been in this game for a long time, as we mentioned. Uh, and you've, you're the one that's had to knock on doors and make these phone calls. And right. and as we know, the conduit for doing that is usually your local members down here, the MPPs for provincial and obviously members of parliament for the uh, the federal government. Uh, right. and, and I'm going to ask you a philosophical question that's been kicked around for 500 years now. Uh, are those representatives there to represent the people of Hamilton, or are they there to represent the government to the people of Hamilton? Because I, I think they get that mixed up sometimes. Some of them do anyway. Well, indeed, and so it's a binary kind of issue, right? You got to do both. Now, uh, we've got two members of the government, uh, uh, and one of them is a former mayor. Uh, his his sort of support on this file is, is, has been questioned, uh, but by the same token, he's there uh, specifically to represent um, Hamilton at the federal level, uh, and he his only responsibilities, I think, are to advance the interests of the city, uh, and I know Bob Bertina will want to do that. Uh, he was talking to me, I just saw him at a function just this past Saturday, and he was talking to me about some infrastructure issues, uh, not the LRT, we're talking about uh, roads, and, and in fact he raised the, uh, the mid-pen uh, issue as well as some other issues that we chatted about. But his role, as, uh, and he doesn't have ministerial responsibilities, his role is to represent the city. And if, this, and if this issue is important to the city, and I would, I would say that the mayor has solid ground to argue that the last municipal election gave him a mandate on this project, then I think Mr. Bertina is, is uh, honor-bound to advance that cause. Well, we've got a similar situation at the provincial level, because our only government representative here is Donna Skelly, who we've been already talking about. And, and she's obviously opposed to the, uh, to the LRT project, for instance. And, uh, you know, you got to wonder, of course, because, and that's the conduit. I mean, it's the provincial government we're essentially dealing with on that project. Uh, yes. I, I don't know if she's comfortable being a champion for that project. Well, I don't think she is personally comfortable, I mean, uh, being a champion for that project, but, but she's also the MPP for this city. And if the city identifies certain projects, I think it's her responsibility to advance that cause as well. The other factor of federally, if I can switch back to that, is, of course, Philomena Tassi. Now, she is an MP uh, from one of the ridings in, in the city, but she also has ministerial responsibilities. So her status is a little different, uh, a little in, more enhanced, but a little different in the sense that, as well as having responsibilities as an MP for the city, she has ministerial responsibilities, which means she has to look after the interests of her portfolio right across this country. But her clout is bigger than uh, an MP because she's at the cabinet table. She speaks to her colleagues more regularly around the table. She speaks to the Minister of Infrastructure when they meet as a cabinet and at other times as well. So her voice, her whispers, her advocacy uh, will carry much more weight. 
And if Hamilton goes to her, and I agree with your point that they need to be working with the MPPs and the MPs, uh, and then through them to the decision makers, whether they are the Minister of Infrastructure, the Prime Minister himself, to advocate for programs that are important to the city. So we do have some conduits that should work in our favor. Well, and to that point, and again, I'd, I'd like you to draw on your own experience in having to deal with those folks, whether MPs or MPPs. Uh, I know you told me a story many years ago, and I want to mention names, but the, the comment I, I, stuck with me. Uh, you were talking to a, somebody who at that time was an opposition member uh, in, in the government and asking and giving them that shopping list for the city. And he, I think the response to you, and I'm paraphrasing, it was, I, I don't sit in government. What do you expect me to do? Uh, That's right. That, well, they still have a representation to do that, and you've seen that, and I've seen that here in the city, where our members, uh, both in the legislature and on Parliament Hill, have crossed party lines and said, I'm going to see what I can do, and actually they've had some level of success with that. Yeah, I, I was shocked by that comment. That comment was made by an opposition member uh, who was NDP. Um, I mean, uh, uh, we, we had a, a plethora of, they were all NDP at the time, uh, and, and he kind of said, well, you know, what do you expect me to do? I'm, I'm in the opposition. And I, and I thought to myself when that comment was made, well, gee, you don't go knocking on doors telling people vote for me because I'll be on the opposition and be ineffectual in advocating for the city. So, so now I, I think he meant it in the right spirit in the sense that, you know, we're not there at the decision-making table, but surely you're there at the advocacy table and you're much closer than, than we would be. And so everybody has to pitch in. Uh, in uh, in the right kind of advocacy, um, but but you know I, you're right about knocking on those doors, right? So I recall during my tenure, and I know that when the mayor meets uh, with federal representatives, when he goes to the big city mayors meetings and uh, and uh, those organizations that are there to lobby the federal government uh, on behalf of municipalities, that you have a chance to to meet these people. Uh, because they all attend, they all give speeches, and they all uh, save some time uh, for individual meetings with mayors of cities across across the country. And so you have a chance to bend their ear and bring projects uh, to their attention. And my philosophy always was, you know, you want to be in, in the face of, uh, of the decision makers. You don't necessarily want to poke them in the eye because nobody likes that, but you need to be in their face just to remind them of what's important to your municipality, because then it's uh, it's you know front front of mind as opposed to the back burner, uh, and and then you got to wait and and be part of whatever program the government puts together. But the fact that the minister of the environment uh, was here, obviously a huge and and she's from our hometown originally, obviously a huge booster of public transit, uh, she will carry that message. But she needs to be reminded almost constantly by uh, the sitting MP and the sitting uh, colleague cabinet minister, other MP from our municipality as well. Exactly, which is, the, to my point, I guess, at the beginning of our conversation, it's great that the mayor had a face-to-face with the minister yesterday, but the, the local MPs and MPPs are the ones that have to carry the ball. Larry, as always, thanks so much for your perspective on this. Appreciate the time today. Thank you, Bill. Have Take care. Forum Health to Mayor Larry Diani. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is a story that we've been following, well, for the last two and a half years, I guess, really. Uh, and it's all about uh, the UK's desire, at least some of the people in the UK anyway, uh, to leave the European Union. Uh, Brexit, as it has become known, of course. We all know about the referendum and the results of that, etc. That happened a long time ago. And as soon as that was done, the, the clock started ticking. 
Well, the deadline for them to actually get a deal is uh, the end of this month, and that's coming up pretty quickly. And the British Parliament is set to vote again today on another Brexit proposition. This time, uh, they want to extend that deadline. Uh, it, it's uh, a little more tricky than you might think. Joining us to talk about the latest uh, developments here is uh, Paul Thomas, postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Political Science and the program fellow, uh, Riddell Graduate Program in Political Management at Carleton University. Paul, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me on. This thing has had more twists and turns over the last, especially the last two and a half years. But I mean, as they get down to to crunch time here with the last couple of weeks in this, uh, it's it's very difficult to actually keep high to side rather on exactly which way this is going. As I read this, Paul, the latest development here is the vote today is whether or not they can get an extension. Uh, but from what I'm hearing, the European Union is saying, "Well, if you don't have a deal, you won't get the extension." Well, they don't have a deal. No, it's, uh, it, it's almost a bit of a game of chicken between Britain and the European Union as to how this will unfold. Um, the biggest problem as well is that even the vote today won't necessarily change what happens. Uh, Britain passed a law, um, the Exiting the European Union Act, uh, two years ago, which began the whole negotiation process, and it was supposed to give effect to the referendum. So by law, that the day of March 29th is fixed right now, they would need to amend or repeal that law in Britain itself in order to change it. But they also need, because of the international agreement that's been triggered, they also need the European Union to agree. Um, And it gets even more complicated because if Britain does stay, uh, there's going to be fresh elections for the European Union Parliament coming up in a couple of months. And so it has a lot of implications as to whether you are going to almost be committing to another cycle of elections and what have you. Um, it was, the date was chosen to sort of make it easy for a graceful exit just as, as sort of the one electoral cycle was ending. So there's just many things. So the European Union's point of view, it just becomes a lot more messy. Even delaying by a few months, all of a sudden you would have an election and then try to undo what was done, which could change the way their own power structure um, plays out. I can remember going back a couple of years before the referendum, just weeks before the referendum, having some discussions with uh, some of the folks over in the UK, uh, Pauli Sires and uh, professors, etc. Uh, and, and of course, the, the the line they were getting there: Look, at if we vote to leave, it's going to be a smooth transition. Everything's going to be fine. We can arrange for something. Uh, didn't really work out that way, did it? No. Um, I mean, part of it is that the devil is always in the details. Yeah. Um, the biggest issue that somehow no one really thought about at the time. Um, was that the UK, uh, despite most of it being an island, does have a land border in Northern Ireland. And that is the biggest issue, um, in part because Northern Ireland is, has a special situation um, under something called the Good Friday Accords, which were signed in the late 1990s to try to uh, create peace after all of the conflict um, that had gone on. And the main element of the Good Friday Accords was to try to uh, integrate Northern Ireland and Ireland to the greatest extent possible and eliminated the border. Um, but the European Union rightly says if, if Britain exits, it was sort of, you know, almost being like if, if Quebec tried to leave Canada but didn't want a border with Ontario, you would have a situation where we might have different customs rules, we might have different taxes, and it becomes pretty impossible to enforce things without some measure of border control. Uh, but in Northern Ireland, there's various uh, groups that will not accept um, the creation of this new border, saying it would lead to a return of the situation that had caused all of those conflicts. Um, And so the the UK has been trying to either find a way 
the, the options are, do you cut Northern Ireland off from the rest of the UK and leave it? Or do you just try to keep the entire UK in a de facto arrangement with the European Union where they sort of leave, but they stay tied to the economic relationships? Um, and so it, it was something that was never really thought about when you were saying it, it'll be smooth sailing, um, in part because Northern Ireland is such a small element of the UK. Now, there's another one of the twists on this thing, and maybe you could help uh, us understand that, Paul. Uh, this is a minority government, of course, but Prime Minister made the government, and it's regularly being propped yep. up right now by the Democratic Unionist Party from Northern Ireland. Uh, yep. But they're voting against the government on, on all of these votes that they've had so far. Are, are the, the, so they clearly, I don't like this idea of leaving, or they don't like the methodology that's being used right now. Uh, but there are political implications to that. I mean, if they, if they decide, you know what, we're gonna, not going to support this government anymore, uh, they could be facing an election. Yeah, and this is where, I mean, the, the biggest mistake uh, Theresa May made was, she, so David Cameron was the prime minister when the referendum was held, and he resigned after that, um, saying that he could not deliver the result. He had campaigned on the other side. Theresa May took over, and she was riding high in the polls at the time and decided to call a snap election. Uh, but instead, things turned badly for her. Many people were angry about the referendum result, and she wound up losing her majority. And so now, as you say, they're, they're propped up um, by the 10 members of the Democratic Unionist Party who keep the government in power. Uh, the DUP, uh, Democratic Unionist Party, does not like what the end result would be. Um, is that they, the phrase they use is, and it gets even more complicated. Right now, the deal they're voting on isn't even the final deal to exit the European Union. They're voting on a deal to have a, another two- or three-year transition period during which a final deal would be negotiated. And the European Union was only willing to enter into that transition if um, there was some provision for what happens if at the end of those two or three uh, years there's no final deal, what happens to Northern Ireland? And the provision put in place was that effectively Northern Ireland would remain in a customs union um, with the European Union, so it would have sort of the same tariffs, the same international trade measures, and the Democratic Unionists don't want Northern Ireland cut off from the rest of the UK. They see it as something that could lead to uh, a further erosion, because they're, the, they're sort of the Unionists. They want to keep united with the rest of the UK, and so they're worried in some ways about being isolated from the rest of the country. So they're in a weird state where they're supporting the government, um, but not supporting its, it, the deal that they negotiated. Uh, on the same topic of, uh, of uh, unwilling participants in this, Scotland is raising their voice about this. Of course, that, <laughs> in that area, they, they, did, they yeah. voted to stay, and of course they were overridden by the rest of the votes from, from England in this situation. But uh, Prime Minister Sturgeon's already talking about maybe having another separation referendum if, in fact, they go through with this. Well, I mean, it... Now, they have to get was, parliamentary approval for that, I understand. Yeah. Yeah, so Scotland can't um, uh, unilaterally call another referendum um, just under the way the powers of its legislature, it doesn't have that ability. Um, however, if they really wanted to, it would look pretty bad politically for, uh, for the government in Westminster uh, to say no. The big, uh, the big irony of all of this is that when Scotland had their independence referendum, um, one of the, the things that was held against um, them leaving the UK was that Scotland would not automatically become a new member of the European Union. And this was because the Spanish... Um, have their own parts of the country that want to leave Catalonia, 
and they wanted to make it really hard so that if you know there's a breakup of countries you don't automatically get to join in um, you have to sort of apply to go through the whole process and so the government um, the the rest of the United Kingdom told Scotland hey if you want to stay in the European Union the best way to do that is to stay in the UK and now the tables have turned and Scotland is saying hey wait a minute you're dragging us out of the European Union against our will because when the referendum was held Scotland voted overwhelmingly to stay um, so Prime Minister Sturgeon has been, uh, or uh, I guess they, they call her First Minister. But, First Minister, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, the main objective for her is to seize this opportunity to try to build support for Scottish separatism. Um, and so the government, it, it's that issue has almost become sidelined um, by all of the madness um, over Northern Ireland and just the deal itself. Um, but if the, European, if the UK does crash out without a deal, it would be highly, highly likely that Scotland would have another referendum uh, to leave the UK within a, a very short period of time. I, I think maybe one of the best characterizations I've heard of this whole Brexit mess, uh, Paul, is yesterday. I was listening to the BBC, and I, it was one of the government ministers whose name escapes me right now, but he said, the good news is everything's on the table. He said, the bad news is we don't have a table, uh, which I thought was just, <laughs> a, a, just a perfect way to try to characterize and, and describe what they're facing these days. Well, it's funny, there's... Um there was a tweet that went viral, and it was just part of it is, you know, the, the government's been given an impossible mandate where the British people basically would like to vote it in the referendum to exit the European Union, but at the same time, they want to keep all the things they like about the European Union. They want to keep, you know, the frictionless trade where things can just be moved across. They want to keep the right to go and retire or vacation in Spain or what have you. And there was one person who put it that, you know, we've, we've told the government to build ourselves a submarine out of cheese. <laughs> the government's done its best, but it turns out that it's, it's actually pretty hard to do it. And now people are angry because it turns out this, the cheese submarine just isn't going to work. Um, and rather than getting angry at ourselves for maybe wanting something that's a bit impossible, we get mad at the government. Um, and so right now, the it is astonishing how different people are seizing the moment for different agendas that are going through as well. Um, and the main thing that's happening is that the parliament seems to be taking a bit of power back from the government. I mean, like much like here, where we always talk about, you know, the Trudeau government um, will introduce something. We just assume parliament will go along, parliament will pass it. Um, in the Westminster context, in part because the government is weak and has a minority, um, the MPs are standing up more and more, and you've actually seen people break away from both the Labour and the Conservative parties and form what they call the independent group. Um, and so it, it seems as though we're not just going to get, as you say, everything's on the table. In many ways, you might wind up with a British government that looks fairly different after this whole process has ended than what it looked like before. Um, and we'll have to see whether that's, a, depending on your point of view, that's a good thing or a bad thing. But it's definitely for people like me who want to see how, how do, what do you do when a, a country decides to make a major change like this? How do you course or try to reconcile um, when people vote one way in a referendum and people MPs vote a different way in Parliament, um, you might see a very different political system coming out. Yeah, I mean, one of the unintended consequences of that, of course, is, is the uh, resignation of so many cabinet ministers. I mean, they must have to wear name tags when they have cabinet meetings now, because I'm not sure the prime minister knows all these people. But with through all of this, and you've done a great job of describing some of the, the dilemmas that they're facing right now, the rest of the EU, Paul, must be looking at this, and, and I understand that the UK is going through all this misery right now, but they, there's, there's got to be a little voice in the back of their head that's saying, I told you so. I told you this was not going to be easy. 
Oh, because remember, sure. remember when they did the referendum, there were a couple of other member countries in the EU that were kind of kicking the tires about maybe, yeah, well, maybe we'll leave too. I don't think they're thinking that now. No, and I mean, part of it is that, um, I mean, the UK just in part thought it would be an easier process because, you know, it, most of the country is an island, except for the thing with Ireland. Uh, but seeing for many of the other jurisdictions, learning that it would not be a simple process, that they're not able to break away as quickly. And also um, knowing that you... So one of the, the options that keeps being tossed around is something called the Norway option. So Norway isn't part of the European Union, but it follows almost all of the European Union's rules. And so it's a way for them to trade, to have people be able to go on vacation and all of those sorts of things, um, but while still maintaining independence. And many people are arguing for a similar situation for Britain. Um, the trouble is that in many ways, it's, you know, you get to say you're independent, but you're still following all the rules. The big difference is that you don't have a say in how they're made. And it's really opened people's eyes to the idea that really you're probably better on the inside of the European Union having a chance to, to go through the rules and also that there is in some ways strength in numbers. Um, and actually right now, a lot of companies, the, the EU is doing almost well out of Brexit because a lot of companies are leaving uh, the European or leaving the UK for the European Union. Many uh, companies are relocating uh, to the Netherlands actually because they seem to be a fairly business-friendly environment. Many, they have a high proportion of their workforce that speaks English um, and it's a way for them to maintain that access to the European market. Um, and so Britain's economy is beginning to sputter as a result of having head offices migrate out of the country. How's this going to end? Uh, I'm, I'm hoping not badly for them, but I mean, they're, they're going to vote today. They're going to, I'm, I'm sure they're probably going to ask for an extension, and uh, I'm not so sure the EU is going to grant them that extension, but uh, I'm not so sure they can even get a deal if they get the extension. So where, where do they go from here? It, to be honest, I, I gen, genuinely don't know. I, I really imagine if it looks, so part the, I guess the, the most, likely path is that Parliament has voted repeatedly to say that they will not accept the uh, country leaving without a deal. And so what would be most likely, at least for what the British want, um, would be for MPs to vote to not leave on the 29th, as is currently planned. Uh, The next, if that happens... Um, there will likely be an effort to remove uh, Theresa May as Prime Minister. Right now, I think the the most likely path is a delay, and then it, either fresh elections or a new referendum. But the current parliament knows it, it knows what it doesn't want. It doesn't want to leave without a deal, but it doesn't know what it's for. It, they don't have another option to put forward. And it seems as though going back to the people and getting a fresh mandate either to leave the European Union um, or to stay within the European Union is, is the only way to sort of resolve this. If they get an extension, is, is another referendum in the offing? I, well, probably. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's hard to say for sure. I think um, many... Uh, so the last referendum, almost no one thought uh, would win. Um, and so people, it, it was almost a, a promise, a throwaway promise that the, 
the prime minister of the day, the day made to c- throw a bone to some of the, the hardline people in this party. Um, and he, he, had, he had done a similar thing on uh, electoral reform, kind of like what, what happened in British Columbia here, where there were some people who were interested in the idea, and the electoral reform referendum in the UK failed spectacularly. And they thought it would be a similar process for Brexit, that most people would say, oh, of course, you know, we might not like the European Union, but it's better off. Um, there's, there is a great deal of reluctance to go back to the people after that. Uh, not that the people can't be trusted, but that uh, the referendum may become, the votes might be cast on something other than the issue at hand. It might be a way of sort of protesting the government or what have you. Um, so the big thing is that the, the opposition party, the main opposition party in the UK, the Labour Party, um, their leader is uh, a gentleman named Jeremy Corbyn, and he is not necessarily the biggest fan of the European Union. Um, he is a very um, sort of older view of labor relations uh, uh, advocate, and he has argued in past that the European Union hurt British workers, uh, limiting their wages because more uh, workers were coming in from the rest of the European Union and um, willing to work for a, a lower price. And so he's not the biggest fan of the European Union for its impact on workers. Um, and he's been kind of ambivalent uh, as to whether leaving is a good thing or not. His main thing has been to make the government look bad for the way they've handled it, but he hasn't put forward a huge alternative. Uh, last month, he finally came around after a lot of pressure from his own uh, caucus to say, okay, we'll, we'll support a referendum in certain circumstances, but his big thing right now that he wants is an election. And so if you, if they do, if Theresa May's government does fall or if she is removed, I think Labour's first priority will be an election, not a referendum. And after that, it just really depends on how the cards fall and which party winds up in power. Well, we'll have to leave it here for now. Uh, we'll see what happens later on today, of course, in their parliament. Uh, <laughs> Paul, great conversation. Thanks so much for your insight into this. I hope we can talk about this further on down the road, because it's not going away anytime soon, is it? Oh, no, no. I mean, that's it's been, as you said at the start, uh, three and a half years now, and it's it's just still grinding on. You bet. Thanks again, Paul. Take care. Paul Thomas, of course, from uh, Carleton University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. want to talk a little bit about the U.S. political scene right now. Yes, uh, there's some interesting complications that seem to be happening uh, vis-a-vis the, uh, the the Mueller report and, of course, Paul Manafort's uh, sentencing yesterday. Uh, obviously, uh, the president's budget, uh, which a lot of people are looking at and saying, are you kidding? Uh, but also, who may run for the Democrats? Uh, the field got a little bit bigger with the official announcement about what some people consider to be one of the front runners. Joining us to talk about all this is uh, Henry Jasek, professor in political science at McMaster University. Hey, Henry, how are you doing today? Just great, Bill. Good. This is, a, this is a smorgasbord here to talk about, but let's let's talk about the Democrats right off the bat. Uh, I don't know how many, I, I can't even count now how many declared candidates there are, but Beto O'Rourke was one that they always talked about here as uh, the guy with the charisma, et cetera, and he's making it official today. Uh, to nobody's surprise, I guess, really. Yes, I mean, he had been talked about a lot, and uh, people were waiting him to come in, and of course, sometimes people don't come in. Uh, we, you know, we saw that a few weeks ago when uh, we had the senator from Ohio, uh, who everybody thought the Brown, everybody thought he was going to jump in. And, uh, Sherrod uh, Brown, really, I had a constituency, and I, you know, he's been kind of in the forefront for the longest time, and uh, yeah. he, he gave up pretty early, didn't he? He gave up, uh, and, and I mean, and a lot of he had a lot going for him, and of course, 
uh, I mean, he was in the middle of the spectrum, really uh, resonated with uh, working class uh, Americans, those who had been traditionally Democratic. And, uh, and of course, with Ohio, if he could carry Ohio, we know that uh, the Republicans have never won the presidency in their history if they didn't carry Ohio. So that I thought that was a real big thing going for him. But Let me ask you about that point. That's, that's an interesting point. Yeah. Hi, was there pressure on him from the Democrats to stay in the Senate? Because, I mean, if he did decide to run, and even if he was successful, uh, that's one less senator there. And, and that's, uh, the, you know, the Democrats want to overtake the Senate, too, not just the House of Representatives. I'm not so sure that another Democrat could win that seat. I mean, he's he's entrenched in that state right now, but I'm not so sure another person would have been. Yeah, it, it's unclear. I'm not 100% sure how much pressure he had from other people. Uh, I, maybe, I mean, your heart really has to be on it. I mean, this is a long grind. And, you know, and people, I mean, the, each of the parties looks at a, a, presid, uh, a presidential candidate saying, if you're going to be the presidential candidate, we expect you, directly or indirectly, to raise about $1 billion. That's a lot of money. That's a lot, a lot of pressure. And he may just have figured out, you know, I, I'm, just not up for, I'm just not up for that kind of pressure. All right, let's, let's talk a little bit about O'Rourke. Um, yeah. The comparisons between he and Barack Obama, of course, have been multitudes and multitudes of, of people saying, you know, the same idea. Uh, he, he has held office before. He uh, gave Ted Cruz a run for his money, almost defeated Cruz in those midterm That's elections right. a few That's months right. ago. Yeah. But do, does he have momentum going for him right now, Henry? Well, the thing about him is he he doesn't... He, He's a politician who doesn't look like a politician, which is, I think, really great. That's the way I look at him. He looks like sort of an ordinary guy uh, of his age. You know, he uh, he just he just looks like that. You know, young middle-aged type of guy, ordinary guy. Uh, doesn't sound like he's rehearsed. He doesn't sound like he has talking points. As a matter of fact, he claims, and a lot of people believe him, that he just, you know, he'll do an interview and he hasn't figured out what he's going to say, you know, a lot like me, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> but he just says it, and, and it's authentic, because he, he doesn't, you know, uh, he doesn't sound like that, okay, he's been briefed on the notes, his uh, advisors have told him, you got to get in this point, got to get in that point. <laughs> yeah, so he sounds so authentic and natural, and so non-politician-like, who, where everybody now is basically trying to convince you of their briefing notes, and, uh, you know, and he, he just looks great. I mean, he, I would think he's going to generate quite a bit of interest. And, of course, I mean, there, it's going to be interesting to see how, uh, how he does with the uh, people who are supporting the, uh, the two old gentlemen in the race, who are the party st- stalwarts, Bernie Sanders and, of course, Joe Biden. But he's, he's a generation earlier and probably, you know, if, I don't like to, you know, people see to discriminate against elderly people like myself. But I think, uh, you know, it, this is he's probably at the right age, and probably for both Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, they're just a little bit past it. I think in terms of the age that they're at now. Yeah, uh, Biden's what seventy six or something. He's he's seventy six. Bernie's seventy seven. Yeah, and he'll be well. I think Bernie will be. 80 maybe when he's sworn in if he should win the presidency i think it'll be 80 at that point uh yeah so it's uh yeah that's that's getting that's really getting up there i mean not i mean a person they both are very vigorous but you know at that age just about anything can happen to you health-wise and you come out of left field and just grab you bang you uh you know put you down put you down so you know you you really want somebody who you know a I always thought, you know, the middle 40s was a great point. If, if the person had a good experience, the middle 40s, because it, it's, it's a lot of energy. To, to, I mean, you have to have a lot of energy to be president because, you, you know, you've you got the world on your shoulders. 
something happens anywhere in the world that's a problem, everybody's going to look to the U.S. president. How do we solve this? Yeah, you know? a lot of pressure on them. So, tremendous so, pressure. So, yeah, I think somebody in his 40s is, is right. All right. Last time, in the run-up to the last general election, of course, it was Hillary and Bernie Sanders. Right. Uh, let's face it, a lot of Democrats did not like Hillary Clinton. And, and you know, oh. she had, and as they headed up there, so they started to feel the burn, and they went over to Bernie Sanders, and they started to like what, a lot what they heard. As right. you mentioned, uh, he's, the, you know, the age is a factor, I think, in a lot of people's minds. Does Beto O'Rourke represent that same kind of political person, that same kind of political ideal, but a, a generation younger? Well, the problem is, uh, so far, he hasn't really been very clear about his policy stands. He's re- basically has sort of sold his personal brand, and people like the personal brand, but a lot of people are not 100% sure of where he stands on which issues. So I'm, I'm not really sure where he stands on which issues. I mean, I'm sure he'll come down on whatever's the, you know, the, what the, the orthodoxy in the Democratic Party, but you know exactly what, it, what that means. Will he be for universal health care? I mean, will he be? I mean, will he be for um, uh, free education in, at state universities for all those who can, you know, who are admitted? Which, which is a big thing for Bernie. I mean, the thing about Bernie Sanders is so impressive. Here was this guy in his late seventies, and he's got all these workers for him who are in their twenties. I mean, that is really something. And it was, the, it was basically because he just, you know, education was one thing, but basically he was such a refreshing, you know person in terms of, you know, doing things that, uh, you know, other, other politicians wouldn't do. And, and recognize, you know, or that other politicians thought would be nice but couldn't happen. I mean, we've known for years, public, I watch U.S. public opinion polls on health care. Yeah. So often, you know, the majority says, when you ask them, what kind of health care do you want in the U.S.? And they say, we want Canadian health care. <laughs> we want universal health care. And the majority would say that over and over again. And that's true today. And but all the Democratic politicians never had really the the courage to say, well, if they want universal health care, and if, and if I believe it's a good idea, I should come out and just say I want universal health care. Uh, and uh, but they said, well, you know, people will think I'm too radical or impractical. It's going to cost too much. And people got that sense. I mean, what's wrong with our politicians? If the people want it, and you think it's right, say so. Well, and, uh, and, and we've already seen that, haven't we? I mean, you know, yeah. Trump and the Republicans have tried to brand the whole Democratic Party right as socialists, quote unquote. Yeah. Uh, as, as first of all, as if that's a bad thing, and and I find it rather duplicitous for them to be talking like that. I mean, that's a country with social insurance, unemployment insurance, etc. I mean, they, they, you know, they, they, there are people that rely on government. Government has to supply those things. Well, I want to quickly. We've got a few minutes left. Sure, go ahead. Uh, the Manafort situation yesterday. He was sentenced. Uh, some yeah. people thought it was going to be a much longer sentence, but I mean, the co- accumulation of that one then and plus the one he got last week it's about seven and a half years. That's right. But the story, of course, just minutes after that was: is there going to be a presidential pardon? What do you think? Well, you know, Trump sort of half promises that or indirectly promises that. But I think he knows if he pardons anybody, I mean, his, his numbers for the election will go right down the tank. I, I, I'm really convinced the American people do not like the pardoning power of the U.S. president. And that's why U.S. presidents normally wait until their last day in office. They, don't, they really don't like it. And I think, he, I think he knows that if he pardons Manafort, He'll, his, his, I mean, his numbers are not good right now. Then they'll get, they'll become terrible. And so I don't think he's going to pardon anybody, you know, out of self-interest. Uh, maybe he might do it if he got reelected a second term. He might do it, but he certain I can't believe he would do it before he gets uh, before the next presidential election. Well, we found out yesterday it may even be a moot point. Uh, because moments after the uh, the verdict was announced with Manafort at the uh, federal court, 
Uh, New York State, Manhattan uh, District's Attorney Office uh, has unsealed a, another document, 16 more charges. And those are state charges, and the president can't touch that. I mean, if he's convicted of those things, uh, he's going to be in jail for a long, long time, and, and Trump can't do anything about that. That's right. You're absolutely correct. You can get rid of all the uh, all the federal the federal penalties, but he can't touch the prevent the sorry the state the state penalty. And so it uh, yeah I, I I think Manafort's there on his own. I don't think he's going to see any daylight uh, you know between now and the presidential election. And uh, and after that, he'll have to deal with whatever they convict him of on the state charges. Well, and and that leads part of the discussion, of course. And we still don't know what's in the Mueller report. Right. Uh, that may be imminent. At least that's what we're told. That seems to be the rumor around Washington mm-hmm. these days. But uh, with that in mind, uh, uh, you know, the the story I'm hearing from an awful lot of the legal experts, and let's you know, you can turn on any U.S. show these days, and you're going to have a legal expert talking about sure. Mueller and everything else. Is that uh, if Trump is in fact offering pardons, that fits that what they call their definition of obstruction of justice, and that is an impeachable offense. You can certainly say that. I certainly would think it is. Uh, the big pro- the big problem is, we, well, can you get the the Repu- uh, Republican senators who need to be there to vote against to to remove them? Would they ever? Would they agree with that? But I think most reasonable people would probably say, yeah, that that's that's a uh, that's obstruction of justice. But uh, unless unless the Republic about twenty Republican senators agree to that, uh, they're not they're not going to get rid of them. But I think where the Democrats are going with their committees. Is essentially they're attacking his his um, his finances and the way he he handles the family business and the basic argument I think is slowly coming out and it's sort of a backdoor into the Russian connection is that in in everything the things that he's doing as president are mainly to benefit his family business that he's not really pursuing the public interest he's basically pursuing doing things. Uh, you know, public policy and statements and relations with foreign leaders to essentially boost his family business. And that, that I think, uh, you know, as evidence of that comes out, to the extent that it does, that, that I think really has, you know, really the ability to turn American opinion really hard against them, because they can understand that. They can understand, they understand, they can understand something that somebody's doing something to, you know, put money in their family's pocket. That That's a little easier for them to understand than some of the other charges that are floating around. Well, the big number is he talked about public opinion polls and, and popularity polls, and I think Trump is still at, at you know, what, 38, 40 percent, I guess, on a national right. level, but 80 percent within Republican voters. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and now some of those might be people that could be swayed to go the other side, I guess, if they, they get turned down or turned off, rather, by some of the stuff that they hear. But, but I guess the other statistic that uh, we need to bring up here is it's very difficult to defeat a sitting president, isn't it? I think Jimmy Carter was the last one that only served one term. Yeah, it, it is difficult, but I think this is a special case. Um, t- two things I would say about it, about it. It is a special case. We need to remember, too, that the body of Republicans in the United States are third compared to the Democrats and the undecided. The undecideds are probably bigger than either of the two parties. The Democrats are bigger based than, than the Republicans. So the Republicans are... People say, yeah, look at how well he's holding the Republicans together, but that's the third base. And if you look at the, especially the independents, that he's, he's been, he's, he's not, he doesn't have the independents anymore. The independents want a Democrat, so that tells me that's very bad. And the other thing, the economy. The, usually the economy predicts very well about uh, a president being reelected. And he talks about, of course, unemployment is low and all this. But the, the factor that I look at, is is essentially the personal debt of Americans. Personal household debt is the highest it's ever been. And if people 
have that a big debt and they can't spend money, that normally makes people very unhappy. I think that's even having a job is one thing, but not having any money in your pocket to buy the things you want to buy, that really makes people unhappy. So I I think he's he may have a problem there. We know that the last Christmas was not a particularly good one for US retailers compared to the Christmas before. If the next Christmas, which is the one before the election, is worse than than the last Christmas, then I would think that that that's really a very bad sign for Trump, because people remember will remember that I didn't have enough money to spend at Christmas time, and it's not that they don't have a job; it's just that their job doesn't pay enough to to make a dent in the debts that they have. Well, uh, James Carville's line from the 1992 campaign is the economy stupid. I mean, that's what matters. And and you're right. I mean, the economic factors, I know we're just about out of time here. Uh, yeah. The job numbers that were released last week are much lower than they had hoped right. they were going to be. Right. Uh, there's some talk of inflation. There's talk about what the, you know, they, they, if, if things start to go south for the, for the economy, they want to blame somebody, and it's usually the sitting government. Yeah, oh, certainly the president. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he certainly will be blamed for it if, uh, if, if people feel the economy is not doing well. And as I said, the, uh, you're right, there are, it looks like the economy is slowing down a bit, and, but, but certainly the, uh, you know, the money in people's pockets. The, it's not only the disposable income, but also the hours worked. If you looked at, I saw the, some last reports, the number of hours people are working in the United States is, is, went down by about three hours or so in the, uh, in the beginning of the year. So that's so you just so that means people are going to have less money coming in. Maybe they got a little bit of a raise, but you're losing three hours worth of uh, pay because of uh, on the average because uh, the employers are trying to really tighten things. They're not letting people go, but they're saying, okay, I'll, I'm going to I'm going to cut your hours and try to save a little bit of money that way. Always great to get your insights, Henry. Thanks so much for this today. Okay, very good, Bill. Have a good day. Take care. Henry J. of course, uh, political science professor from McMaster. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.